Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, and this is our fifth lesson in the book of Ephesians, and as you can tell, we haven't noticed, or we haven't uh, moved very far, and you may notice that things are kind of going slowly here, and that's because um, what we read about in this chapter uh, is really very deep material, and we need to examine this very closely, because how we interpret these particular scriptures will determine how we interpret the rest of the entire Bible. So tonight, we're just on verses 5 through 7. And if I preach on something tonight that you don't fully understand, or you need to have a second go-around with it, we do have, of course, our CDs available. And uh, you can now get the Wednesday night sermons off the Internet if you'd like to listen to those. And as I understand, Brian, you're doing some podcasting as well? or experimenting with some podcasting and if those of you that know anything about that don't ask me I don't know anything about it but you might know how to do that and uh, so they are available but I encourage you if you don't understand something then listen to it again and hopefully it'll become clear to you well in the original Greek of the New Testament uh, verses 3 through 14 of this first chapter of Ephesians are actually one long sentence and what this includes is the work of God from eternity past all the way to eternity future. It would, of course, be nice if we could just take one day and then we could spend all day long trying to tie together all of the things that are taught in these verses. That would be a good study for us, but uh, we're not able to do that. You probably wouldn't be able to listen that long, and I probably couldn't talk that long. And so what we have to do, we have to break it up into segments, and we have to just uh, take it piece by piece. Now, this evening, I'd like to talk to you about the legalities of salvation. And that might seem to be a very strange thing for me to say because usually when we think about salvation, we're not talking about legal issues. In fact, there are many people who would think that if you mix anything legal with salvation, that you can't have salvation by grace. Well, I firmly believe in salvation by grace and that salvation is all by God's grace. But that doesn't mean that salvation doesn't have a legal aspect to it. In fact, it's the law of God that has to be satisfied in salvation or we could never be saved. It's the law that condemns us. And so God's law has to be satisfied. It has to be taken care of. And we understand, of course, that God is gracious and God is merciful. But one thing that God never does, He never extends grace or mercy at the expense of justice. And so that makes it necessary for us to talk about legal terms when it comes to salvation. Well, I'd like you to stand for the reading of God's Word tonight. And our text verses are from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Beginning in verse number 5. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this reading of your word tonight. And we have some, uh, could be very difficult topics to talk about. We just ask you, Lord, to help me to be clear in what I say. Open the ears of each hearer and help them to understand your word tonight. And we give you praise for this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. God's law has to be satisfied before any person can be put into a right relationship with his creator. 
And if it weren't necessary for us to meet the demands of God's law, then it never would have been necessary for Jesus Christ to come into the world to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus would not have to do that if we weren't concerned about satisfying God's law. But what Jesus came into the world to do was to do something that was impossible for us to do. Jesus came into the world to live a perfect life and then to give his life to pay for the penalty of God's wrath that is against everyone who is a sinner against God. Now, the legal term that I want to begin with this evening is actually not even mentioned in this passage, but it's one that we need to talk about because unless we have this, we can't talk about the other things. And so, uh, even though Paul doesn't use this word, he does use it in other places, and we do need to discuss it, and that term is justification. So I want to show you tonight, first of all, speaking about legalities, that we are justified. We're justified by our belief in Christ. And justified means that we have been put into a legal position where we're no longer condemned because of our sin. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul wrote, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. So justification means that we are brought to a place that when we are evaluated by God's law, that there is no reason why any punishment should be inflicted upon us. And so to be justified means to be free from the condemnation of the law. But although we are freed from punishment and God sets us free and we have become not guilty according to the law, that doesn't mean that we weren't lawbreakers. And it doesn't mean that we hadn't offended God's law. We're sinners. And all of us at one time, if you're saved tonight, at one time you were under God's wrath and you were justly condemned. If we turn over just to the second chapter of the book of Ephesians, we find there the Bible says that we all were by nature the children of wrath. And so justification has not come upon us because we haven't broken God's law or we haven't trespassed the law. And the reason that we have been declared innocent is not because we haven't sinned against God. So something else must take, take place in our hearts. Because we are sinners, something else has to take place to take care of the sin that we have uh, committed against God and to bring us to this place of justification. And the only way that we can be justified is to have this penalty of God's sin answered for us. For every breach of the law, there must be a corresponding penalty paid. So we could say, first of all tonight, that the law must be satisfied. God's law has to be satisfied before we can save. And a righteous God forgives us based on the fact that a penalty has been executed. Now this is a place where we need to understand that there is a difference between the forgiveness of man and the forgiveness of God. Now, when we forgive a person, we understand that that person has harmed us in some way, and they have, uh, perhaps they are deserving of some kind of punishment, and all things being equal, that person should have to suffer some kind of consequences because they have wronged us in some way. But our forgiveness says that a penalty doesn't have to be paid. We forgive a person, and we don't impose a penalty on them. So whenever we forgive, we don't actually seek retribution on someone. 
But God's forgiveness works in a totally different way, and that's because God's forgiveness can only work when the penalty has been paid. Because God is a just God, because He is a holy God, He can never forgive sin without the execution of the penalty. And so somehow, some way, a penalty has to be paid. Well, that means then that you and I are responsible for the consequences of our sins against God. And if it were possible that we could suffer long enough to pay for our sins, then eventually we would come to the place where God would forgive us and he wouldn't punish us any longer. But the problem is with us is that we are not capable of suffering long enough to actually pay for sin. And that's why hell is an eternal place. Our sins are against a holy God, and we could never live long enough. No matter how long eternity might be, we could never come to the end of the punishment that would be inflicted because of breaking God's holy law. And so that's why hell is eternal. That's why people, when they die and go to hell, they must stay there forever because they can never pay the penalty of their sins. So you see, that puts all of us in a huge dilemma. We can't satisfy God for sin, and God is not going to forgive us until his law is satisfied. And so that's where the suffering of Christ on the cross becomes the determining factor. You see, because Christ was God, he was able to suffer infinitely. And he was able to reach the full extent of this penalty of law that God had imposed upon everyone who's broken his his laws. So Christ's death on the cross is a full payment of the penalty. And on the cross, Jesus Christ actually suffered the hell, the same amount of hell that you and I would have to suffer having sinned against the holy God. Now, I don't have time to address this right now, but the suffering of Christ could only be for those who eventually do believe. Otherwise, everybody would be saved regardless. You see, if God's penalty for sin were, were paid for every person without exception, then every person without exception would go to heaven because there wouldn't be any basis on which to condemn them. And God is so righteous, uh, he is such a righteous God that he never exacts punishment a second time on someone. In other words, you cannot pay for sins that Christ has already paid for. And so uh, the death of Christ then pays for these sins for all people who believe. But it's not just the death of Christ that's needed. And that might seem to be a strange statement to you because there are many people who believe that Christ's death is really the only thing that matters. But it's not the only thing that matters. Now, besides this, besides the death of Christ, I want you to notice, secondly, that righteous living must continue. You see, what the death of Christ has done is to reconcile us to God, but then, after that, we have to be able to live in a pattern of righteous living. We have to live a righteous life. And verse number 4 of this first chapter tells us that God has chosen us, that we would be holy and without blame. Now, I don't want you to mistake what I'm saying here because I'm not saying that the death of Christ has justified us and put us into a right relationship with God and then we have to keep up the payments on our salvation. That's not what I'm saying. And if we don't keep up payments on salvation, then we'll be lost again. And that is a fundamental misunderstanding of people who believe that you can lose salvation. They do not understand the everlasting nature of justification. But if we were left alone 
and we didn't have God's help to see us through this, then we could never come to the place where we would be holy and without blame and not be chargeable under God's law again. And so it's not just the death of Christ that's necessary. There has to be something else. We would all fail of the holiness that God requires if only we were reconciled to God and it stopped there. So what Christ has further done is to give us His righteousness. Now, I'm speaking of a righteousness that is earned by Christ. I'm not speaking about his inherent or his intrinsic righteousness because Christ does not transfer that. But he does transfer the righteousness that he earned by living a perfect life upon this earth. And so when he transfers that righteousness to us, God never sees anything in us at all but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And upon that basis, God can continue to declare us just. Now, is the death of Christ alone sufficient? Well, it's sufficient for justification, but it's not for sanctification. I want you to listen to what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. He said, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, and listen, we shall be saved by his life. And saved by his life means that Christ arose from the dead. He ever lives. He's alive right now. And Christ is living for our intercession. And so what he does, he continually uh, intercedes for us. And he continually pours his righteousness upon us so that God doesn't see anything in us but Christ's righteousness. The Apostle John put it this way. He said, the blood of Christ cleanseth us from all sin... And actually, that verse is interpreted, the blood of Christ keeps on cleansing us from all of our sin. So that's the first legality of salvation. We have to talk about that. We have to get that out of the way before we can talk about other legal terms that are in this passage. Now, I want you to notice, secondly, this evening, that we are adopted. And the word adopted is also a legal term. And you might ask the question, well, if we are the children of God by faith then why is it necessary for us to be adopted? Well, the word adopted is actually, or adoption is a word that only the Apostle Paul uses in the Scriptures. And actually, this is a legal term in the Roman system, the Roman legal system, and the Jews really did not have an equivalent to this. They didn't really understand this. But what adoption does is to give a person the legal rights as an heir. When we speak of Christ as being a son of God, the Son of God, and when we speak of us also as being sons of God, we need to understand that there's a difference between those two things because Christ is the eternal Son of God by eternal generation. And we can only become sons of God through the process of adoption. We receive our legal status by believing in Jesus Christ and then what's transferred upon us is the legal, legal rights to all things that God would give us. And, of course, this is what Jesus was addressing with Nicodemus when he told him that he needed to be born again. And the reason he told him that was because no person becomes a child by natural generation. We have to be adopted into the family of God. And so we receive our legal rights of sonship by our adoption. We're adopted in Christ. Christ is the heir of God, and because we are in Christ we also become the legal heirs of God. So our adoption has given us the legal status so that we could never be bypassed in our inheritance. Now let's notice some things here about adoption. First of all, the Bible tells us that adoption was predestined. It says, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. 
Well, predestination is another one of those words that people wish was not in the Bible, but it's here, and so we have to deal with the word. Predestination differs from the chosen in verse number 4 because what predestination has to do with is the plan of God. See, the actual plan of God was determined before the foundation of the world, and election is a part of the implementation of that plan. Election refers to the individuals, but predestination refers to this overall plan. So maybe we could state it this way to help you understand a little bit better, is that predestination is like God's blueprint for the world. I mean, this is how God predetermined that things would be done, just like an architect draws up a plan for a building, and then when he starts to build the building, everything follows according to that plan. Then inside the plan is the implementation of the different parts, and that would include things like election that we read about in verse number 4, that, or the choosing that's in verse 4. It would be redemption that's mentioned in verse number 7. And of course we know Acts, the book of Acts tells us that redemption was something that was predetermined before the foundation of the world. That's part of God's predetermined plan. Uh, this also includes in the implementation, the adoption in verse number 5 that we're talking about now, and also sanctification in verse number 4. Then it would also include things like the creation of the world, uh, the creation of angels, creation of heaven and hell, and on and on we could go. These are all part of the implementation of God's predetermined plan. The old divines used to say it this way, God hath predestined whatsoever comes to pass. So adoption is one of these things that has been predestined in the plan of God. Then secondly, we notice that adoption relates to rank and privilege. Of course, we, we're used to thinking of a person's rank and what privileges they're entitled to. Well, adoption does not necessarily refer to the nature of a person after they're saved, but rather it refers to all of the benefits that that person uh, uh, will come into because of his relationship with Christ or the things that he is entitled to. And so adoption then is the legal term that describes all of that. You see, when a person dies, only certain people have a right to his inheritance. For instance, if Bill Gates were to die tomorrow... I won't be able to attend the last reading of the will and testament. And I won't be able to claim my five or six billion dollar portion of his uh, estate. But if you were to ask me, what right do you have to the estate of Gerald Smith? Which in fact is far less than what Bill Gates had. Uh, if you were to ask me that, I would tell you because he's my father. And I am a legal heir to him. I have rights because I'm a legal heir. And the same thing's true of God. If someone asks you, what right do you have to the possessions of God, then you could say rightly, I'm his legal heir. I mean, he's made me one of his legal heir because I've been adopted into his family. Now, Paul makes an argument in Galatians chapter 4 that a child who is in a household is not any different from a servant. You see, a child has restrictions. A child has to have somebody watch over him. He has someone govern his life. A child is under tutors and teachers until he reaches a certain age. And as long as he is a child, he never is able to exercise any rights that are above that of a servant. But when the person is adopted, then the legal rights to be more than just a servant are given to him. And all these legal rights are put into play and then the rights are exercised. So adoption has to do with rank and privileges. What we are entitled to because we are the children of God. 
Now the third part of adoption is really the paramount teaching of this passage because this is what brings us right back to the sweeping statements that Paul makes of why God has done all of this. So thirdly, adoption is for God's glory. Now remember that uh, none of this has as its chief derivative the salvation of man. The chief derivative is God's glory, and salvation is a means to bring glory to God. So Paul writes in the beginning of verse number 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. I want to advise you about something here, that this is where modern evangelism breaks down. Now, preachers will preach all of the time about the benefits that we receive from salvation. They'll preach about the worth of the soul winner. And they'll talk about the scripture that says, He that winneth souls is wise. And they will continually emphasize over and over and over again the part that man plays in this. But when do people just simply stop and give God the glory? When do, we, when do we step aside and say that this is all of God? And when do we understand that every lost sinner who comes to Christ is given salvation for only one reason, and that is to glorify God? It's all about God's glory. And so if God's glory were not involved in this, there is not a single person here who would be saved. So it's useless then for us to quibble over issues such as free will and how does man respond to the gospel call and can he do that without divine influence while we overlook the reason why all of this is done. This is not about your response. That's not the chief thing here. It's about God's glory. And if people continually take away more and more pieces of salvation out of God's hands, then what they actually do is to denigrate and continue to denigrate God's glory. Every piece that's in God's hands brings more glory to God. And I believe that's where evangelism goes wrong today. It's all about the sinner, and it's all about the soul winner, and nobody ever really talks about God. Now, I want you to notice something in the end of verse number 6, and it's in the terminology that Paul uses here. He says, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Now, do you see that? It's the word accepted. Who is accepted? We are accepted. God accepts us. Now, the common language that we have today is that you must accept Christ. But the Bible never actually uses that terminology. We don't accept Christ. God accepts us. And the Bible terminology is that we receive Christ. John said, but as many as received him... To them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now you need to think about that verse very clearly sometimes. Because Christ, because God gave Christ to you, you received Christ and you received it by God's divine power. You receive it as a gift of God. And then God goes further, he gives you power to become the sons of God. And that verse tells us without any question that we are not in control here. God is the one who's in control. Now, maybe you might think that accepted, received, it's all a matter of semantics and it doesn't really matter. But the point is that the way we talk sometimes is a result of our mixed-up theology. We have been so conditioned by the hyper-fundamentalists to push men to accept Christ that we put all the emphasis on what that person can and will do for himself. When actually, it's all about God. The the scriptures here put all of the emphasis on God. And and the hyper-fundamentalist puts all of his emphasis on the onus of man. And puts salvation in man's hands. 
But I think it's presumptuous for us to somehow believe that we evaluate Christ and then we decide if he's worthy of our acceptance. And that's why I reject that kind of terminology. It's not Bible terminology. And if you think about it clearly, it borders on blasphemy. God accepts us. And we receive him only by the good pleasure of his will. And that's the only way that we ever will receive him. Now, I think you should be able to see why this part of the book of Ephesians is so important and why the theology of Ephesians is important because this will change your whole perspective on salvation. This is God bringing salvation and not man bringing it. And I'm afraid that that's not what's taught by most Baptist churches today. Uh, They don't glorify God. And it's not about man primarily, folks. It's all about God. Now, let me go on to another word in verse number 7. It says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So thirdly, we want to talk about we are redeemed. We're redeemed. Now, in verse number 7, there's a shift in the persons of the Godhead. In verses 3 through 6, Paul is speaking about the Father's work. And now he brings in the next person of the Godhead, and he begins to focus on his work. And so this part of the Scriptures starts to talk about Christ's work in salvation. Now, you remember from a a previous lesson that I told you that the Scriptures do not start with man's salvation— Here in the book of Ephesians, it doesn't start with man's salvation, and it doesn't start with Christ's work on the cross. It starts with God's predetermined plans in eternity past. But now when we come to this verse, we switch from what happens to eternity pa- in eternity past, and we switch to what's happening in the present, what Christ is doing for us now, and what, what occurs in time. Now, before I I, I break this down into different parts about what's involved here, I think we need to take just a moment to explain what redemption is. What do we mean when we talk about redemption? And I've uh, put these terms down in your listening sheet today because there are three Greek words that actually translate this one word with one English word, redemption. So what are the Greek words for redemption? Well, the first one is agorazo. And what this means is to buy at the marketplace. Now, this is like going to the market and putting your money down to buy something, and then you take it home with you. And this is the word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And the word bought in that verse is the same word as redeemed. It's agorazo. And that's what it means, to buy at the marketplace. Then there's a second word, and this word is ex agorazo, and that means to buy out of the marketplace. And so this carries with it the thought of buying something that uh, is for your particular use. You see, you could go to the store and you could buy something, and then you could take whatever you buy and you sell it someplace else to make a profit on it. You know, people go to flea markets and they go to a farmer's market or something like that, and they'll buy some items there, and they may take it someplace else and sell that again. And it's sort of like going out and buying something wholesale and selling it retail. But what this word means here is that it is bought out of the marketplace so that it can never be sold again. It becomes something for personal use. Now, this is the word that Paul uses in Galatians 3.13. Christ hath redeemed us. That's ex agorazo. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So what that means is that Christ has bought us, we belong to him, and never again will we be put into the marketplace. We can never be sold again. 
Then there's a third word that's used for redemption, and this is the word apolutrosis. And this is a word that means to liberate by the paying of a ransom to set a person free. And that is the word that we find here in verse number 7 of our text in Ephesians chapter 1. And this is like a person being bought out of the slave market. We're bought out of the slave market and then we're set free. And of course, in, in our case, we were slaves of sin. We were bond servants. We were under the dominion of Satan. But what Christ has come to do is to ransom us, to buy us, and then to set us free. So we had this spiritual bondage on us from which we could not escape. And so Christ came and bought us out of the marketplace, and he set us free. There's a story about a, a young girl, a young slave girl many years ago, who was put on the auction block for, for, uh, at the slave market to be sold. And there was a man who was a slave owner there, and, and he was a very cruel man. And he began to bid on this young girl. And as he bid on her, every time that he put his bid in, this young girl would would cry and fear would come into her eyes and she'd be terrified because she knew what kind of man he was. But then there was another man there who was also a plantation owner and this man had a reputation for being very kind to all of his slaves. And this man was, was bidding on this girl as well and he's the one who won the bid. So he put the money down and he started to walk away from the auction place and that slave girl began to follow him. And he turned around to her and said... You don't understand. I bought you in order to set you free. And this young girl, she couldn't believe what she was hearing. And so she broke into tears and she fell on her knees and she said, Thank you, sir. Thank you. I will serve you for the rest of my life. And that's a picture of what Christ has done for us. He's bought us out of that slave market of sin. We're no longer in bondage. And now that we belong to him... Not only does he set us free, but now we become willing to serve him for the rest of our lives. So those are the meanings of the word. And here, Paul is emphasizing the ransom price that's been paid to deliver us. Now, let me talk about first tonight, as we speak about redemption or being redeemed, I want to talk to you about the Redeemer. Who is the Redeemer? And the Bible describes him here as the Beloved. Now, in verse number 6, Paul calls him the beloved, and of course, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. And over and over throughout these verses that we've read, uh, there is a continual emphasis on Jesus. In verse number one, he's Jesus Christ and Christ Jesus. In verse number two, he's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's in verse three, our Lord Jesus Christ. He's in verse number four, in the words, in him and before him. In verse number five, he's Jesus Christ. And now Paul comes to verse number six, and he calls him the beloved. Now, do you see the underlying truth that we find in all of this? This is not any kind of a record of a man trying to lift himself up and trying to find God. That's not what Paul is trying to show us here. This is not about anyone seeking God. This is the record of what God has done for us, especially through his son, Jesus Christ. He's the beloved of the Father. And that's the way Peter described him in Second Peter 1, verse 17. He said, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so the Redeemer is Jesus. And the continual emphasis is on what he has done and what he has worked out for us being the Son of God. Well, I could spend all night and I could go into the wee hours of the morning talking about Jesus. 
On Sunday mornings for the next year, I'm talking in the Gospel of John, stories about Jesus, and all of it points to him some way. And we could never, no matter how long we preach, overemphasize Jesus. But I want to point out something to you here that I don't want to forget. And this is the privileges of adoption based in the fact that Christ is the beloved. I want to read to you from John 17, verse 23. It says, I in them, this is Jesus speaking, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Folks, that is a statement that is beyond belief if we didn't just read it right here in the Bible and know that it's true because God says, Jesus says, that God loves us just as he loves him. Thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Oh, what a redeemer we have. To think about that, what Christ has done for us, that God loves us as much as he loves his very own son. You know, that tells us that redemption and adoption and things that Christ has done for us are beyond our wildest dreams. We couldn't even imagine so much that God has done. Now, that brings me to the second part, and that is the redeemed. Who are the redeemed? Well, they are the saints of God. And the most important thing that I can stress here is that whatever Christ did on the cross, it did accomplish its purpose. Christ came to redeem, and what Christ has done is to redeem. I mean, what is redemption that doesn't redeem? I mean, what kind of redemption is that? But yet, you'll listen to most preaching today, and preachers want to be so inclusive that they have Christ paying a ransom price, a redemption price for people who aren't actually redeemed. In other words, there's a vast number of people out there for whom Christ has paid a redemption price, but they never actually become redeemed, and so they go to hell regardless of what Christ has done for them. But I would point out to you tonight that there is not one single person in hell that Christ gave his life to redeem. All of God's people are redeemed. And and if it weren't true, redemption would be foolishness to us. Because what hope could you have in that kind of redemption? It would be untrustworthy. I mean, if, if Christ has redeemed people in hell and they die and stay there for all of eternity, what in the world would make you think that you could stay in heaven based on redemption? You have no guarantees in that. But the fact is, or the answer is, that the redeemed are only the saints of God. Only the saints of God are the redeemed. And Christ redeemed those who would believe in him, and Christ redeems none others. And and it was always Christ's intention from eternity past to redeem those people and those people alone. And that's why Jesus said in John 17, verse 2, and we've used this verse often and we will continue to, "...as thou hast given him power over all flesh..." that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. So those that were given to Christ by the Father are coterminous with the redeemed. Now, if you've ever heard of the doctrine of particular redemption, then that's exactly what it means. Verse number 7 of our text speaks of redemption, and it fully supports verse number 4 of the text that talks about election. And that's because God's work, God's word fits perfectly together in every detail. And then when you've heard me preach so many times before that Christ did not provide a hypothetical redemption, this is what I'm talking about. Now, the hyper-fundamentalists today say that Christ has made it possible 
for you to be saved. And that's all it is. That he presents you with the possibility. But that is neither the language of Scripture. I mean, just as accepting Christ is not Bible terminology, neither is the possibility that you might be saved Bible terminology. Now, Paul says here in verse number 7, we have redemption. And he doesn't say we have a possibility of redemption. He says we have redemption. And so the essence of the gospel is Christ is that Christ has done something on our behalf and whatever it is that Christ has done for us, it secures exactly what was intended to be done and what was intended. We could all raise our hands and say, redemption, wasn't it? Salvation, isn't it? That's what Christ intended to do. And he perfectly fulfilled everything he came to do. You see, I don't believe in a powerless Savior who can only redeem if I decide to join him by belief or accepting him. No, I'm saved because Christ determined to save me. And he gave his life for me. And that's God-centered theology. And it's not being taught by most of our Baptist people today. Why are we different at Berean Baptist Church? Because we've gone back to preaching what our Baptist forefathers preached and believed before the whole system got hijacked by the modernists like the Moody's. Now let me finish the lesson tonight with another big subject. And, and really, we don't even have time much to touch on this. And I could make a lot of messages out of all this material, but I have to move along. Thirdly, I want to talk about the redemption price. The price of all this. And the price is the blood of Christ. Now, you see, Paul could have left some ambiguity in this, and he might not have told us exactly what it is that actually pays for our sins and how we are redeemed. But Paul leaves no ambiguity. He states it very clearly. What is it that redeems? The answer is, in whom we have redemption through his blood. So the blood of Jesus Christ, this is the price of redemption. Well, why didn't Paul say, we're redeemed by Christ's death? And we have redemption through Christ's death. Well, lots of people would accept that. And that's because it's a lot easier to accept death than it is to accept blood. Blood's too gory for a lot of people. But if Paul had said, we are redeemed by his death, then Jesus perhaps could have been shot with a bow and arrow. Maybe Jesus would be electrocuted by lightning. Maybe uh, he would have died of a heart attack. Maybe he would have gone out and hung himself. But if any of those things had happened we would not have been redeemed. And the Bible says we couldn't be because redemption is through the blood and only through the shedding of blood is there redemption or is there forgiveness of sins. See, the blood sacrifice is the Old Testament typology and Christ came to perfectly fulfill all of God's law. You remember God's law? I've talked about that, haven't I, that we're talking about tonight? And this is what Christ came to do to satisfy God's law. And so the Bible says that a sacrifice has to be made. It tells us that blood must be shed. A lamb has to be killed. The blood has to be sprinkled. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And that's the legality of it. All of that is part of God's law. And all of it had to be satisfied. Now there are two words that we need to think about as we think about Christ's blood. And I've given you these words before, but maybe you don't remember what they are. I don't have a blank for you on your listening sheet tonight, but you might want to remember these. Two words that we think about when we think about Christ's blood are expiation and propitiation. And what expiation means is the taking away of guilt, and propitiation means that God is satisfied because the guilt is taken away. 
And so he forgives based on the payment of blood that both expiates and propitiates God for our sins. And again, these are legalities. I mean, when we speak of guilt and punishment, those two words are legalities. And when we think of pardon and forgiveness, those are also legalities. And that's why we talk about legal issues concerning salvation. Now, I want to finish the lesson tonight. Again, there's so much more that can be said on the blood, and I I just don't have time to deal with it. But blood is very important to our theology. It's absolutely essential. And it is the blood that separates us from the new evangelicals. Now, why can't we mix with new evangelicals? Well, let me make this statement on your listening sheet tonight. We divide with new evangelicals on the worth of the blood. Now, some people have asked me, what do you think about modern preachers like Charles Stanley and Josh McDowell and, and some of the older preachers like Billy Sunday? Well, I would tell you that I divide with them over the worth of the blood. Now, these men uh, ha- are teaching, and the ones that are dead have taught, that the value of the blood of Christ is equal to the value that he paid for us. In other words, the price of Jesus' blood shows us that God regards us so highly that he's willing to pay the ultimate price for us. And I actually watched Charles Stanley one time hold out his arms like Christ on the cross, and he said, Christ died for you because you were valuable to him. Well, what's wrong with that? It devalues the blood. It terribly devalues the blood of Christ. You see, the reason that Christ paid the ultimate price of his blood was to redeem us not because of our value, but because we had no value owing to the depths of depravity of the human heart. We are vile creatures and we're in sin. And the extreme blackness and vileness of our sins is the only way it can be paid for is through the blood of Christ. I mean, our sins against the holy God are, are... have only one thing that could possibly cover them, and that is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so the only value that we have is because Christ's blood has been applied to us. And when his blood is applied to us, we become acceptable to God. So what this means is that our value to God is subsequent to, in other words, comes after the death of Christ on the cross, and it's not antecedent to it, which everybody should know, means that our value does not precede what Christ has done for us. So the only reason that Christ gave his blood was to make us valuable, not because we are valuable. And that's where I differ from new evangelicals. And this system of believing that Christ died for us to make us valuable is what gives the most honor and the glory to God. And that what completely says that man has no part of this and it all must be based in him. Now, folks, I believe that every drop of Christ's blood is precious blood. And not one drop of Christ's blood was ever wasted. Every drop has a corresponding value for the forgiveness of some sin. And so that's why we reject new evangelicals. It's why we reject some of the ideas of hyper-fundamentalists. And that's because they devalue the blood of Christ. Well, that's all the time I have tonight. And if you misunderstand something I've said in the message, ask me about it, get a copy of this, listen to it over again, because this is very important for us. What we believe right here will determine how we interpret the entire Bible. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for...